Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? Welcome to the show. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thank you for joining. I appreciate it. I am uh, excited about today's show, as you should be as well. It's a uh, pretty special show, my friends. A pretty special show because... You will listen to a conversation I had with Sasha Baron Cohen, who does not do many public conversations, not out of character, and usually those are short, but uh, we talked for a long time. Seemed like he was ready to talk about some stuff, and it was pretty uh, it's pretty fascinating, man. It was, uh, it was pretty fascinating. I, I really didn't know what was going to happen. I'm glad I had the opportunity to do it. Apparently, he, um, he was sort of uh, defied or requested to uh to do it uh by a friend of his in england because I, I you know he goes out and when he has a movie coming out which he does he goes out and does uh he does some stuff but he usually does it um does it as uh does it as you know in character of some sort or he's got a shtick and um not this time people that's i guess i guess that's what i'm trying to tell you not this time uh, the comedian and, and writer uh, Peter Bainham, a British fellow who's a friend of uh, Sasha's, uh, told him that he had to do the show. And he came over a couple weeks ago and uh, we sat in here and I gave him some coffee and he got lit and, uh, and, and we went at it. It was, it was really great. It was, it was one of those things where when somebody creates, I think that, um, that Sasha has created a couple of uh, real cultural masterpieces and real comedy masterpieces with uh with borat and bruno and um and the ali g stuff and uh and he he's done stuff that has such a punch to it and is so visceral and so immediate uh also character driven but but revealing a lot satirically uh, about uh, the world and people and our culture and and he just those are amazing contributions uh to the world of comedy and to satire He's got a new movie coming out. It comes out March 11th called The Brothers Grimsby, which is a um, a narrative film, uh, a pretty uh, exciting and uh, goofy uh, hybrid of uh, uh, kind of an action movie and a doofus movie with some of the most crass uh, filmic joke experiences that uh, I think you'll ever see. That's where he's pushing the buttons in this one. But... 
the bottom line is I didn't know what to expect. And uh, we had a very full ranging conversation about comedy, about art, about education, about, you know, a little bit about religion, about uh, the power of comedy and why we do it. And uh, I, I don't know, man. It was uh, it was exciting for me because I don't I don't know about you. I've always wanted to know what was inside that guy and what drove him, and and I got as close as you're going to get to uh, to getting some answers. So that's coming up in a few minutes. It's you know his commitment to characters is is astounding, and you know as I talk to him about uh, you know how he puts those characters together, why he puts those characters together. I mean, what I found out about him. And you'll find out too as you listen to it is that he loves the rush. He's a real comic. You know he. You know he. He didn't. Uh, he's a natural, but you'll be surprised to listen to how he trained and what he really wanted to do and what uh, you know what is the real intent of of his movies and his characters. And and it's not unlike uh, a, a comedian uh, or somebody who does things that are provocative. Somebody who takes the risk of of putting themselves out there in front of other people and or in situations for that for that adrenaline that juice, yeah, man. I mean, I just I think about that a lot. I've been thinking about that a lot lately in relation to my life and how long do we have to live and what's really happening and what choices am I making? What do I need to do? What do I don't need to do at this point at this juncture in the history of me? Who am I? It's weird, man, because I come full circle a lot of times. I, you know, I'll go years where I, you know, I feel like I'm, I've made uh, strides and I have in some areas, but the same shit in my head, you know, you just, you hit these cycles. You, you, you have these moments where you're realizing, holy fuck, am I just a collection of ticks and habits or a repetition of behaviors and actions that circle back around? It, it, it's amazing the limitations that you find in yourself. And then when you talk to somebody like Sasha, who has this freedom of, uh, of talent to immerse himself in characters on purpose, uh, it, it, it seems very liberating to me because a lot of times we just become the characters we are in as a reaction to the situation we're in. I guess my point is, is that for fuck's sake, don't be too hard on yourself if you're a freak inside and uh, you just say like, all right, you know, maybe, maybe some of that will come out in a healthy way <laughs> and maybe some of that shit I'm just going to have to live with and die with. There's no wide open, man. There is, you know, but it's a pretty fragile place and it's a pretty fucking rough world. I do think I I, I did get certainly more than I expected and uh, had a great conversation with a guy that has been, you know, privately hiding behind characters for a very long time. So enjoy my talk now with Sasha Baron. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or 
you're needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Owen. I'm very happy you're here. You seem like an elusive character. Yeah, what today I do? Or? No, in general, you're like yeah, a rare. Well, like have a, we started? Yeah, is this it? Like you're a rare, on. a rare, a rare, a rare animal of some sort. It's like a, where, where is like that? Like the guy? yeti? Exactly. Yeah. Who is that guy? Does he do anything outside of the thing? Not really. <laughs> Louis C.K. Yes. Who I heard your um, interview podcast. Yeah. What would you? Yeah. What term would you use? Uh, yeah, my conversation. Your was conversation. Louis. He actually. He once came and we employed him for two days to work on Bruno, the movie, a movie I did called Bruno. Oh, oh did you really? Like, yeah. What did he do? Well, a lot of it was, uh, I don't know if you've seen the film. It's a yeah, I I gay Austrian yeah. uh, character. I know the character. And um, in it, he has a transformation. Yeah. He goes he goes into self-hatred and he becomes an ultimate homophobe. <laughs> and so Louis came in just for that kind of transition bit and he was saying... There was a lot of advice on how I could build up muscle. So he basically became like, wait, this brilliant comedian. A lot of it was like, if you just, you know, when you're talking to people, just bent, just, you know, lift, do the curls continually. While you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> and actually he came up, he said you should do something in the ultimate fighting arena. Uh-huh. Oh, that's, he came yeah. up with that? Well, he said, do something in there. I don't think he quite had what we were actually going to do there, but that was, he had the kind of brainwave of, and that is something that would be great to stick a gay man in. And and that was that was sort of a hairy scene, right? I mean, that almost caused trouble, didn't it? Yes. So um, that was a tricky scene, actually. It was tricky. Because so we wrote the... So Louis came in. He had that idea of the ultimate fighting. Yeah. And then I'm with my friend, Ant Hines. He's this um, great, bold writer that I've been working with for about 18 years. From Britain? Yeah. And we were thinking... Um, you know, we want to finish the movie yeah. in this arena. Like a normal romantic comedy <laughs> has the guy propose to the girl in a stadium full of sports <laughs> fans and they kiss and everyone. On the video thing. Yeah, it's on the video. Yeah. And we thought, all right, let's do that. Let's have all the sports fans. Yeah. But let's do it in an ultimate fighting arena and let me make out with the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we wrote in the script, all right, we're going to do this and it's going to turn into a riot. And... We knew it'd be a security issue. Yeah. You know, like, how do you... So you... You know, I don't know. Have you ever been to see an Ultimate Fighting? No, or, it's not. It, it, it all... It doesn't it, go well with comedy, generally. Comedians don't really... No, well, I mean, well, I mean, Rogan's like an actual uh, announcer. Seth, Seth Rogan? Joe. Joe Rogan. Oh, really? He's, an act, he's a comedian. He's actually an announcer for Ultimate. It's just yeah. not my thing. One, I can't even deal with it ironically. I just... Yeah. Being around, you know, that much alpha male insanity yeah, just kind of creeps me out a little bit. So they don't know they they, they don't so know they, your yeah. character. No, no, no. So basically I thought, how do I get out of there? We're gonna have two thousand rednecks, we wanna have a riot, but how do we get out of there? And then But are we, they even rednecks? They're more bros. They're more sort of muscle bros, right? Well, we did it the first one we did was in Texarkana. Oh, okay. Which I'd been to once before. Texarkana is only famous for one thing. Yeah. They pulled an African American man well, one person pulled an African American man behind a pickup oh, truck. Oh, that's right, that's right. Until he died. Yeah. So that 
That's the town. So, so they're almost like wrestling fans. They're, they're just, wrestling fans. It's, it's an extreme place. Right, right. Basically, we're there on the day, and the question is, we, we were 200 people short. We couldn't, didn't have the 2,000. And one of the judges was a, worked at a prison. Yeah. At jail. Yeah. And he said, all right, I can get 200 guys. And suddenly, 200 guys come out. They're from, on parole. And these guys had swastikas on their heads. And really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty great. Crazy. So basically, I do the... I'm told by my lawyer beforehand because... It, what, to make a will? Well, well, <laughs> well firstly, <laughs> firstly, the studio, we did it through this company called MRC. And they go, they go, we just want you to sign this document. I go, what's this document? And it's basically an insurance policy that if I get killed during filming, yeah. that they get all their money reimbursed. <laughs> So I'm like, why? I've never, I go, I don't, have, I've never had to sign this for what? They go, just sign it, please. Otherwise, we won't make the movie. So um, anyway, get to the thing, and I have this the night before. I'm on the phone with my lawyer. I've got this great lawyer who basically is this uh, gay Southern man. He's a yeah. genius in the First Amendment. He lives in India, mm-hmm. and he. How's ha- that happen? I don't know. He got. He kind of moved to an ashram. He's like a dude. Okay. And he's got 15 <laughs> lawyers working for him. Yeah. And whenever we're in trouble, we call up and they're like, okay, in the case of uh, Smith versus the state of Arkansas, it is very clear that the indemnity... So we call them up. And it's really good for us because we can call them up late at night and they're experts. So he has these right. 15 guys. You know, one guy is just Arkansas, Texas. Just and, all constitutional yeah, lawyers. All constitutional First Amendment yeah. law. And so they go, it goes, all right, there's like 12 things you need to know. None of these laws can you break. You know, and the big one was, he said, whatever you do, you know, don't, don't incite a riot. Right. Because that's a federal offense. You know, if you're crossing a state line to incite a riot, then that's punishable, you know, by a minimum, I think, three years. And it's a federal offense. So... Uh, that's what the Chicago Seven were up for, actually. Right, but you, but you would not. It's sort of a, a gray area. I mean, it's not what you wanted to do. Yeah, it, the problem was it was what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. So right, I right. said, "There's a problem because I am crossing a state line in order to incite a, a riot at the end." Because I thought it'd be a great thing Just to the movie. Insanity. Yeah. yeah. And so there were about 15 things. He said, whatever you do, you know. So we went through all the nudity laws and the decency laws. Obscenity. Yeah. yeah. So. We had to like let people know that there would be nudity. So as a result, I had this poster printed which had like, you know, girls in bikinis, really hot girls in bikinis going, right. there will be nudity and right. ultimate fighting. <laughs> Obviously, when they got there, there was male nudity. And then there were about 15 stipulations of like, you know, I can kiss him on the mouth. I can kiss him on the nipple. I can't put a finger in his rectum. Right. He can place a open net palm on my you know, ass, ass cheek. cheek, but not... The moment it gets within two centimeters of the rectum, you're done. So basically, Arkansas ended up being one of the only places in America we could get away with it because there was some, uh, the indecency laws were kind of framed wrongly. They put the punctuation in the wrong place. Really? And so essentially, we thought we could win in a, in a, uh, court case if you what if you put a finger in a rectum well no even those would still be illegal right. but the idea of kind of you know making being, out making out with the guy yeah, yeah. and being almost naked was yeah. okay and but so what ended up happening and how the hell did you get out of there because it was it was bad right yeah so it's pretty bad so i interviewed a bunch of security guys before and i go all right here's your setup i'm in an ultimate fighting cage Two thousand guys they get angry i'm gonna make out with the guy how do you get me out and 
the seven guys all failed. And then one guy came So you in. had to tell them the joke. I mean, yeah, you had, yeah, yeah. You, I told, yeah, I told yeah. my security guard right. that we were hiring. And then a guy came back. He'd just been in Afghanistan looking yeah. after Karzai. And he said, all right, sir, you know, trap door. Yeah. And he said, that's the only way to get out, which is a trap door. So we built a trap door in the cage. And then this guy, when he shouted, go, 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 the rule was I had to go. Right. So um, also for the night, he like, you know, they hired like eight security guys to be around the cage. They're like, there's no way anyone is getting in that cage. And I go, all right, great. So we did, it was interesting, actually, because we're doing the scene, right. you know, but it's in a real environment. Right. And it's the end of the movie, so it has to work. And it, so our aim is I've got to make it, my boyfriend's going to come into the arena, <laughs> into the ring. I haven't seen him for six months. I become this homophobe, disgusting guy called Straight Dave. <laughs> yeah. And he's going to see me. I'm going to fight him, yeah. beat the shit out of him. And then when I'm going to give him the final death blow, I'm going to kiss him instead because uh-huh. he breaks my heart. Right, right. And we're going to make love yeah. and there's going to be a riot. Yeah. So that's the aim and that's the end of the movie. And right. that's what we have to do. We've got one <laughs> opportunity to do it. And I said, listen, just in case it doesn't work, let's book another place in Arkansas the night after. So anyway... It's like Buster Keaton with the general in the yeah, train. Like exactly. you only got that one shot yeah, when you the train one. blows. And you, if you didn't get it, it's over. So I get there and I made a mistake. I made a mistake, which was in the writing. And this shows you when a scene is wrong and a scene is right, the yeah. audience know it. So we're there and I'm straight there. I'm, Come on, you fuckers, everyone. You know, and I get everyone drunk and they love me. And my, I go, okay, who wants to fight me? And my boyfriend comes into the room. I haven't seen him. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I do is I attack him. And I beat him up. And he's got fake blood in there. And he's like a weak-looking guy. Yeah. And he's bleeding at the end. And the crowd stop booing me. Because you're beating him up Yeah, because I'm beating him up. And he's bleeding. And he looks weak. And so... I did the one thing that the lawyer told me not to do, which was I challenged the audience to fight me. I said, all right, because I've been told by the bodyguards there's no way anyone's getting in. So, I, okay, come on, any of you fuckers want to have some shit kicked out of you? I'll, be, I'll rip you apart. And, and I knew no one could get in the cage. And then at th- that point, I see like some kind of six foot ten giant, you know, 250 pound, yeah, yeah. huge, muscly <laughs> Neanderthal man run stop running towards the cage i go there's no way this guy's getting over i got security around it i look down the security are gone they're looking off there's a big fight has broken out with all the prison get the guys from the jail (laughs) and there's no one there here i go all right he's not getting over this cage one hand two hand and he does a flip and lands does this somersault lands and he's huge this guy's ripped he's an ultimate fighter Right, right and he you know puts his arms in the air and the crowd roar and basically at that point I hear go 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 I jump out the the trap door <laughs> anyway my friend Ant who's yeah. the writer with me co-writer we're in this tunnel so so we have a trap door the trap door leads to a tunnel the tunnel goes straight to a car that's got its door open with the engine running because we know if we've got to go everyone's going to run after us yeah. so anyway Ant comes into this tunnel and he says alright get back in there come on Sash get in there Go back to the ring. Yeah, go back in the ring. I go, there's a guy in there. He's going to kill me. And and not only that, they start throwing metal chairs into the ring. The guys, you know, the inmates in the crowd. 
You just get in there, finish the movie. Come on, we've been working this movie for two years. <laughs> finish the movie. Go in, kiss your boyfriend, finish the movie. We go home. I go, but they're going to kill me. I, so I said to the bodyguard, I go, I go, all right, pop your head in. And if I can get in without going to hospital, I'll, or going to hospital for a long time, <laughs> then I'll do it. And he goes, all right. I go, hey, you agree, Ant? Yeah, yeah. So the bodyguard puts his head in and he goes, get out of here <laughs> we run we jump into yeah, the yeah. car then so we drive over we're in Texarkana and word has obviously got out that I'm in town they know so, it's you now yeah they know it's me there's 2,000 people there who are looking for me we get straight in the cars and we drive through Arkansas to the next place the police find out about it I can't remember which town we went to so how'd you get that last shot so I set up the same ring the next night. We had 2,000 people the next night. And what we did was we couldn't put barbed wire on the top because I had to have some way of stopping people jumping in. Yeah. Um, so I put faked barbed wire on the top of the ring so that people psychologically wouldn't want to jump into the ring. Yeah. And um, we had all the chairs kind of, you know, stuck down with metal, basically yeah. metal chains to prevent them going and uh yeah we did it the next night to an unsuspecting audience unsuspecting audience we had the police there yeah. there are about 15 cops there and you had the uh, trap door and everything yeah we had the trap door and the basically the cops said listen we know we heard about texarkana <laughs> word if is you, out yeah if you break any of these laws we're arresting you so it's a bit like the end of the blues brothers i had the cops yeah. there they were going to get me if i broke the law if I it's like a Doors concert, yeah, yeah, They're just waiting for you to show your dick, exactly. <laughs> and then you know the guy, and then I sort of just want to make sure that nobody got in. And in the end, it kind of really worked. We changed the scene a tiny bit, so I realized that there was a problem with the scene because I attacked him. The crowd booed me this time. I said, you know, I'm going to turn my back to the crowd, and you're going to go and punch me in the head. And he did it, and it was great because he was playing unfairly the crowd were on my side right i then hit him he hit me he was tougher i had some blood and then the he crowd were on my out. side yeah and they were fully behind me they were ready for me to really hurt him and that's when i kissed him yeah and that's when they freaked out uh, but they couldn't jump over and then somehow so i'm kissing and making out and all the time i'm thinking of all the legal laws you know okay, i can stroke his ass da, da, da. he goes to put a finger in my ass i'm like whoa, whoa pull it away da, da. and kissing him da. and then at one point i see another chair f flying in it's a metal chair flying in and i'm thinking what the fuck how yeah. did this happen <laughs> what happened was somebody had got a knife in and was yeah. soaring through the chain like commitment like so committed to her to hurting me and then uh, eventually so i thought i'm lying on my back and i'm thinking if I hold my co-star tightly, I can move from left to right and dodge the chairs. Yeah. But eventually, after two chairs, the I hear go, go, go. <laughs> and the rule was, once you hear go, 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 you have to go. Yeah, go into the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. So go into the tunnel, into the waiting car, drive off. What we didn't think about, though, was that we had left the crew there with 20 ultimate fighters who didn't know what was going on and were really pissed at the crew. Yeah. And these 2,000 guys. So there was it turned into this riot. And in the end, I think it took about 40 cops to march into there to rescue the crew. Did they get hurt, anybody? No, I mean, we had like Larry Charles was the director. Yeah. He picked up the monitor. You know, the monitor's really heavy. And he yeah. was like threatening to smash people in the face of the monitor. And 
They managed to get out all right, yeah. But like when you're working with Larry and you guys know what this is going to happen, you, yeah. you know this shit is going to happen. I mean, I can see when you're talking about it that there's a, you're, it's the excitement of a guy who jumped off a mountain and lived. You yeah. know, like the thrill of it all. I mean, you're entering this situation knowing full well that this shit you know, is going to be on some level life or death, right? Like, you know, Larry knows that. You know that. Yeah. So, so like... It was worth the risk to you, obviously, but how much of that was really the reason you did it and how much of it was, you know, to, to sort of make this provocative piece of film? I mean, it, it almost seems like extreme sports in itself. So is the question whether we did it for the film or <laughs> just the boss of it? Yeah. Okay, well, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> I mean, I okay, think I, think, I think you get to the heart of it, actually, which is, so when we're making the film, we're like 10 guys on the road. Yeah. This is for all of them, for yeah. for Bruno and Borat. Yes, anyway. the Allergy Show, and you get addicted to the adrenaline. Once you beat the cops once, yeah, you go all right. You know, great. Let's do what the can next we one. Do now? Yeah, what yeah. can we do now? Then you beat the FBI, and yeah. then you know, you start winning. You beat the FBI with the Allergy Show in terms of getting access. Yeah, getting and, yeah. access to the FBI. Well, on Borat, the FBI started following us. They got so many complaints that there was a terrorist. Uh, traveling in an ice cream van that really? it, it was you know it was you know we shot it uh 10 years ago so it was a couple of years after 9-11 yeah. um when we actually so shot that's it. interesting because that's like weird backstory that really adds to the message of the movie that, that yeah. they were that paranoid that they, they of course the terrorist would be a little fat guy and this guy with, in an ice cream truck yes exactly <laughs> we're the classic so the fbi got so many complaints that they started you know compiling a little file on right. us and eventually they came to visit us at the hotel and we, you know, I obviously went missing, you know, when I heard, because they were like, FBI's downstairs, Sasha, disappear. <laughs> oh, know? really? Yeah, because you don't want me to be apprehended. I mean, we had one time in New York when we were Would making- Would you have stayed in character? Well, the first time, I used to stay in character with the police. You yeah. Know, the first time I think was in Sedona in Arizona. Right. And- we didn't really have our shit together and we didn't know the law well enough. And so I thought... This I, was with Borat. Yeah, with Borat. We were doing the Ali G show and there was some kind of psychic masseuse who he was trying to get me to relax. I was being very tense. He goes, yeah. listen, I'm going to go out the room. When I Pardon my terrible American accent. When I come back in, I want you to be relaxed. So he comes back in and I'm masturbating. Yeah. Well, I'm masturbating under the cloth. <laughs> right. So I thought, what's the big deal? He calls the police... <laughs> So the police turn up. I'm at the next place and I'm alone. Yeah. And the police sort of surround. I thought, okay, I'll pretend to be asleep. The police pull me out of this car and they start questioning me. And I'm going, I don't know what the problem is. Uh, and they go, what What exactly did you do? I go, I was touching my hrum and uh, making a swift movement. And they go, sir, what is a hrum? A hrum, I'm a hrum. And, you know, I go to... Uh, you made you know, up word? I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then, so I stayed in character. Mike, the crew wasn't around. No one was around, you know. Yeah. And I went, I remember I went to blow my nose, put my hand in my pocket, and the guy pulled his gun. <laughs> Which you realize, by the way, when you hear about all these kind of African-American kids getting yeah. shot, you've got to be so well-trained to not get shot. Right. If you're in that right. part. Right. It's so easy. Right. You know, I was going to blow my nose, and what? the guy was going to shoot me. Well, it's sort of like you, you sort of deal with that in the new movie, when you finally get the gun. Yes, there, yeah. That, there's that moment where you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, when you've so got a easy, gun, you want to shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a cop's yeah. got a gun, he's going to use it. Right. Um, 
so I handed we handed over the tape actually because we didn't realize there was a problem. They wanted the tape. They said, "Stay here. You're going to have to. We're going to have to come back and arrest you." Uh, and what we didn't realize was we called up the lawyer, our lawyer in India, and he said, "Simulating masturbation in Arizona is a crime." Uh, and it's two years imprisonment. And actually, I think um, R. Kelly went to jail for that. Uh-huh. One of the things he went to jail for. Um, so we said to the lawyer, okay, what do we do? And he said, get on a plane right now. Get out of Arizona. Run. Because they've got, they've got the evidence. You right. gave over the tape, which is the worst thing you could ever do. Right. But- so, so again, getting back to it. So there was some part of you, you know, even though you had the conceit and, and the structure of, of what this character was capable of in provoking a social message or a satirical message, but, but there was some other part of you that was like, how, how far can we push the law? Yes, yes. And that well, became very exciting. Well, everything I've ever done, lawyers have immediately said, their knee-jerk reaction has been, it's illegal. We can't do that. Impossible. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, they do that with everything. Like, yeah. Why not just yeah. err on the side of, like, don't do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, lawyer, their aim, and I have to always, you know, explain it to the sort of heads of the channels yeah. or studios, is the aim of your lawyers is not to tell you what's legal. It's to prevent your company from getting sued. Right. And obviously, in Borat, we ended up getting sued, I think, you know, 150 times. But it ended up being very beneficial for Fox. Uh-huh. Um, because be- you knew you were okay. Yeah, we were all right. We knew we were on the right side of the law. But so. they still got to pump some money into, you know, making that clear. Like yes. The lawyers still have to go like, no, and that costs, you know, $1,000 a second. Yes, exactly. So right. you get insurance for right. the, oh, okay. you know, for the kind of lawsuits. So in the script writing stage of the movie yeah. it's all about you know what will make the greatest movie and what will make the be- not the greatest what will make the best yeah. film yeah but yes there is that problem and obviously you know criminals must have the same thing as well which is that once the adrenaline kicks in you get addicted to the adrenaline yeah and that's when you start making silly mistakes and the, the crew would say come on let's just do this and do that yeah you know and that's when actually people can start getting hurt or arrested is it interesting because that momentum like especially Borat because that's sort of a masterpiece, and you know, thank and you, and, and you know, and it's it's considered that, and it deserves it, and it, it did show a lot of uh, us about, more about our country, and it also was hilarious and whatever. But the idea that you know that if if people aren't inherently prejudiced, they are inherently you know um, complacent. That they you know out of politeness they'll go ahead and sing you know throw the Jew down the wall. That they were there even in that mo- even in that yeah. moment. Like you didn't get the feeling like what what that's a room full of anti semites. Yeah. It's it's actually a room full of fucking hicks that are sort of yeah. like well let's, let's indulge this guy you, yeah. you know. But on the other side of that, the 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 flip side uh, that is dangerous is what you're talking about, which is where you get a group of people that get so adrenalized mm. by the possibility of starting shit that yeah. shit happens. Yeah, yeah. That, well, there's a few interesting issues you brought up there because he, you're right. Throw the Jew down the well. You know, what does it really show? Does it, and I suppose for people listening out there who haven't seen it, I... Google throw the Jew yeah, down the Google well. Throw, you're right. It's much... I don't need to explain it. Okay, yeah. yeah. So what does it show? Does it show that the people in that bar are anti-Semitic? No, not really. They probably don't hate Jews. They probably... Well, here's the moment. As a Jew, here's yeah. what I felt. Was that, you know, at first they were like, who the fuck is this guy? And then it, then, then next they realized you're not a threat. He's sort of a clown. Mm. So, you know, the song's stupid, he's stupid. Let's okay, let's indulge the foreigner. Yeah. He seems to be sort of speak trying to speak our language. Yeah. But once they all started singing, I had this feeling that, you know, when you started talking about Jews and money and, you know, you know, taken by the horns, that there is part of 
their you know uh, limited uh, intellectual narrative that involves Jews you know mm. running the government. So yes, yeah, of course, that, that is important. And I think I think you're right. I think it's you know what does it show? Is there any satire in it? I think it shows not necessarily that they're anti-Semitic, but I think the dangerous thing is people who are indifferent right. about evil people you right, know right. so essentially somebody comes up and says has an incredibly racist song against african-americans that's yeah. vicious and about them being yeah. you know the worst stereotypes of african-americans for a crowd to just come and sing along and go yeah with the black you know yeah, whatever yeah. the lyrics yeah. would be is almost more dangerous i mean i, I at university i studied um uh, Nazi Germany is amongst is specialized in the 20th century history. Yeah, and uh, there was the main historian at the time was this guy called Ian Kershaw, who was the main historian of sort of that period. And his thing, he had this sentence which was, "The path to Auschwitz was paved with indifference." Right. Which I thought that was it's a great comment. It's not that people are actively hate black people. It's not that people actively hate gypsies or actively hate Jews. It's that they're ready to let it happen. Well, it's that, this is one of these things, like, as an American Jew, you know, you're sort of brought up with this, you know, Holocaust awareness that is sort of plowed into you. And you, even when I was a kid, you know, I'm 52, you know, they'd show us the movies at Hebrew school, and you, you really can't wrap your brain around that experience. Mm. I mean, it's not that, I, you know, that I'm indifferent, but it's like, how, how, how do I really understand that that really happened and that's possible and it's happening? And then there's, like, outside of the... The sort of indifference there's the good german thing that you know the people that go along with whatever authorities in place mm. and i think also like what you see in in the in the borat movie is that is that as long as it's not us yeah fuck it yeah do you know what i mean maybe they are a problem mm. i don't know yeah but you went to where'd you go to college i went uh i went in england i went um to cambridge so that's uh, a good school yeah, I mean, it's good. I, I went there mainly because of the Cambridge Footlights that... So Monty Python came out of the Cambridge Footlights. So that was... I wanted to do comedy. Which is what? The sort of like non-theater, theater group kind yeah, of? Yeah, it's right. like the comedy group. Okay. And ironically, so I went there, you know, I went there to get into this group. It's a bit like the Lampoon. And I was never allowed in. Really? Yeah. So that was, you know, I got there the first week. Great. Do the audition. And couldn't get in. And as a result of that, I um, ended up doing straight acting. A rumor went around the university that I was this brilliant actor, even yeah. though I'd never done any acting before. I got given this lead in a Chekhov play. Yeah. And the rehearsal started happening, and the director said, wait a minute, you, you can't act. <laughs> and so he said, All right, he said I'm going to sack you from the, uh, get rid of you. Yeah. You know, you can't act. Yeah. And in the rest of the cast, they really liked me. And they were like, you sack him, we all go. And so I ended up actually doing this Chekhov play and ended up doing kind of straight roles. And what did, how did you do with it? It ended up being fine. In the end, I did a kind of sort of funny version of the Chekhov. It was a Chekhov comedy. But you're always compelled towards comedy. Yeah, yeah. So wait, so where'd this start? Where'd you grow up then? What part? So I grew up in Northwest London. And what's that like? It's a kind of pretty Jewish neighborhood. Yeah. Sort of middle class. Yeah. And your dad did what? Accountant. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what did your mom do? She was like a keep fit teacher. Keep fit? Yeah, what, keep it, fit. What do you like? Exercise. She taught yeah. classes? Yeah, I taught classes in the living room. And, oh, really? In yeah. the living room? Like a few yeah. ladies? Yeah. Some Jewish ladies yeah, would some come Jewish over? Yeah, some Jewish ladies from nearby. Do the movements? Yeah, exactly. 
You had a pretty big living room, or was it a very small class? It was a small class. <laughs> it was a small class. She didn't make a living at it necessarily, yeah. but she had her heart was in the right yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. And how many siblings do you have? I got two brothers. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And are they in show business? Well, one is the composer for... He's a composer. He does all the movies that I do. Oh, that's nice. Is he out here? Is he in He's London? in London, but he was... So we grew up. He was a jazz musician growing up. Oh, yeah? And so the house was always full of music, and he'd take me... Older brother? Older brother. Yeah. Older brother. And so from the age of kind of 12... He was taking me out. He used to do sort of late night jams. Uh -huh. You know, that's the only place you could sort of practice your jazz. And he was trying to get into jazz college. So you'd have to go to these clubs. So and... I would go. Somehow my parents allowed me to go to these midnight jams. Yeah, yeah. We'd get back at like four in the morning and then I'd wake up for school at seven. Yeah. But yeah, so he ended up, you know, sort of versing that kind of music. And then he started producing a lot of kind of soul and early kind of r&b and yeah. that kind of stuff so we had a there was always a kind of you know a lot of the artists were round in the living room eating my mom's food and oh yeah yeah so your parents were pretty progressive open creative people in a way yeah they were or at least at least uh, indulged you guys yes they were happy for us to make some music and muck around be fun yeah to, to have the, to be interested in something yeah well my dad loved comedy and my mom loves music so, so what was your first exposure to comedy that made you sort of like have that moment where you're like holy shit um, I think I was eight years old. Yeah. And Life of Brian came out in the cinemas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was an X in England. It's kind of their, their best movie. Yeah, it's incredible. And my brothers managed to sneak me into a cinema. An X, it was an X. X, which is an 18, I think. Yeah. So it got banned. Actually, Life of Brian got banned in a lot of England. Because of the, con the religious Yes, the religious yeah. stuff. And my brothers took me in. I think it was the first time I'd seen a fully naked woman. Yeah, yeah. And is there a guy's cocking it? I, I think I feel remember. like there is. I, I, I I know, in my memory, there's a guy's cocking it. I think there is maybe. I, I'm, I'd I'm, like to think so. Sure, why not? Well, I mean, let's let's, let's yeah. blame that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and that obviously, I, I mean, there's probably a lesson there, which is don't show eight-year-olds X-rated movies, comedies with cock. Yeah, in them. exactly. Uh, but I just remember loving it, and I was obsessed by yeah. Python after that. Yeah. And that, and so you like watched all the Flying Circus and you watched yes. your other movies. Yeah, and you know, Meaning of Life. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something about going into cinema and there being that outrageous laughter. Yeah. I think maybe subconsciously I'm trying to achieve I don't know. No, no, no. I'm not I, very I, good at the self-analysis stuff. Are you not? No, the English people are not very good at that. Know, you Americans are brilliant at that. You, yeah, it's it, it, that is sort of true, isn't it? It's yeah. it, but you you grew up with you know, sort of open minded people who taught exercise classes. Yeah. I mean, there is some self awareness to. There must have been a little of that. I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think in England there's much self awareness. I think you know if people are what they describe as mentally ill here. In England, you just call them eccentric, you know. So everyone finds them like fun eccentric. Yeah, you, you kind of Here, indulge, they'd be lo yeah, they'd indulge be them until they're annoying, and yeah, you're like, yeah, and exactly. That's that guy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there'd be, uh, you know, there'd be uh, some guy flashing his yeah, privates yeah, on right. the in the nearby park. Oh, it's just some eccentric guy, you know. So when did you first start you know, performing comedy of any kind? So I think I was about nine years old when I wrote my first sketch. Based on a Python sketch, kind of, probably. Yeah, that Tonally. kind of... I mean, it's terrible, but I was in this kind of Jewish youth club, and they would do kind of final performances and, you know, final parties, and I would write a little sketch, and I'd yeah, get yeah. sort of excited about it. Yeah. And then... Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. You know, I started doing a little routine with my brother on the circuit. Uh, he was a musician, you know, as we said. On what circuit? The Jewish Youth Club circuit? It was kind of the, the Jewish old age, old age home circuit. How old what, were you then? I was about uh, 16, and we would dress as Hasidic Jews yeah. and sing, like, Jewish songs. Yeah. And uh, one of the songs was this song called Schwitzing. Yeah. Which was about how these Hasidic Jews get so hot. Yeah that they end up shaving their beards and taking their clothes off and actually converting to Christianity at the end. And it would go down terribly. I mean, these old age homes would who, hate it. Who was booking you? I How don't know, you but the, people were like, please take the money, never come back here again. <laughs> what did uh, you call yourselves? The Cohen brothers? What, what was it? I can't, I can't remember. The Schwitzing brothers. But eventually I got seen doing that and I got hired to by the Paramount Comedy Channel to do Bruno, actually. To do like some kind of undercover stuff, the yeah, version of Bruno. You yeah. come up with Bruno at that yeah. point. Well, I did. I did this. Um, I started doing this cable show when I was about twenty-three. Yeah, and it had about forty viewers. But I was doing these characters. Yeah, and one of the characters was this early form of Ali G. Yeah, um, but Ali G. Like this is what's interesting. Also interesting about the the brothers grimsby is that these characters you know that that guy what's his name your the yeah, guy you yeah play? Nobby. nobby nobby is a very specific british type yeah you know, you know what you are lampooning is very specific british type as was ali g and both of them are you know we can get it enough you know we know what the american version yes. is but you know ali g i i still don't know exactly what his background would be or who that guy you know what was you know what was his life like yes well it was intentionally ambiguous. So Ali G, the idea was, you know, I, how could I go into a room with a very intelligent person, somebody yeah. who was an expert, <laughs> usually a member of the upper class, and ask the most idiotic questions possible and not get thrown out of the movie? Right. So I decided that if he had this, you know, whiff off, ethnicity about him and possibly even islam or yeah. pakistan or whatever that their their prejudice would lead them to assume that i could be incredibly badly educated the, their white guilt would in, in would would they would indulge you yeah because it would look that like sort of like oh, look i'm talking to one yes of them. exactly look, right right and also their stereotype yeah. of the uneducated ethnic masses right meant that they believed that somebody as idiotic as Ali G could exist, when actually Ali G couldn't exist. There's nobody that... If you were that if Ali, somebody was that stupid, they probably would die. You know, they would... <laughs> the one I owe to more, they'd actually be dead. Right. Yeah, the, the idea was he was ethnically ambiguous. As a result of that, when I... Within, like, a couple of weeks of, you know, putting him out on air, every... There are a few ethnic communities that claimed me as their own. So the Greeks... Greek community said he's Greek. And yeah, the yeah. Pakistani community said he's Pakistani, and actually part of the black community said he's black. Yeah, even though I wore no makeup, and as you can right. see, I'm yeah. pretty damn white. Yeah. Um, and then um, at some point it came out that I wasn't any of those, and I was actually Jewish. And then at that point, I was accused. Um, a a black paper in England wrote an article saying, "Is Ali G racist?" which is a bizarre question because yeah. Ali G is a fictional character. Right. So I don't know, maybe he is racist. We hadn't worked it out. We hadn't. Right. Um, but the I think they were asking the question of, was the creative Ali G racist? 
And they asked a bunch of black comedians. Eight of them said no, and two of them said, one said, I don't know, and one of them said, yeah, he's a racist. That led to headlines in all the newspapers one. in England. One comedian. Yeah, yeah. Tabloid-driven culture. Exactly. Yeah. All the tabloids wrote, Ali G is a racist. And they didn't even know, I think a lot of them didn't know my name. And it became, at that point, I had this dilemma, which was, do I come out and say, come on, man, I'm an anti-racist. And, you know, racism and anti-racism is a issue that I feel strongly about. You yeah. know, when I was, you know, in my 20s, I used to march against racists and fascists and neo-Nazis. And, you know, at university, you know, my undergraduate thesis was all about racism. So, and uh, how to combat that. So, so what uh, were the questions you were asking yourself? I mean, like, you so, know, did you have to do some soul searching around how that character was being misunderstood? Or did, was there... No, I didn't have to do any soul searching. <laughs> my thing was, I knew where I stood on race. I yeah. knew that I was vehemently against right. any form of racism. Yeah. And I wanted to shout out and, you know, say to the press... I'm not a racist, and here's my evidence. But I decided to do nothing. We were making the Ali G show at the time, and me and the producer sat down. We just said, you know what? Let's just work. Don't engage. Don't engage. Yeah. And for a week, the press debated it as to whether it was a racist. And you're just watching them talk about this clown you invented. Yes. (laughs) And basically, at the end of the week, they concluded that it's not racist at all. And some of the kind of greatest intellectuals in England came out and said, you know, he's not a racist. But by the end of the week, by doing nothing, I become from this niche comedian, I became a household name. Um, because of that? Because I said nothing. Because of the, the public argument about whether or not the character yes. was racist or whether that it represented racism. Yes. But like, didn't Ali G have some uh, Caribbean affect a bit? Yes, yeah. Like, he yeah. was He was a, he wanted to be black. Yeah, he wanted to. So he spoke in Jamaican patois. And the idea was he was this probably middle, and it was ambiguous, you know, sort of lower middle class guy from some kind of ethnic background. It was unclear and irrelevant, actually, who was unhappy with the, how mundane his own ethnic life was and actually wanted to adopt this exciting foreign uh, african-american gangster culture right so you know it's a complete that was what i think what blew everyone's mind here was like this is a completely unique and ambiguous ethnic character yeah that the fact that it didn't land on on the radar in any sort of set way made it even more interesting and, yes. and more empathetic in a way and i had some kind of affinity with that i mean my first first way i made money from the age of sort of 11 to 14 was as a sort of break dancer a breaker on the you know i used to go on the streets had one friend and you know we used to go and make some you can do it you put the cardboard down we used to put the car we had a linoleum oh you did and... so you, you were guys were pros you had a linoleum well, you had a floor yeah we you... were terrible but yeah. oh you were no good we were so young that we made some money people were like look at them trying yeah exactly <laughs> and they gave us you know we'd make 15 pounds but if you're 11 years old you made 15 quid that was a lot so um there was part of me that identified as this kind of nebbishy kid yeah. who saw this rising movement of hip-hop. I mean, prior to that, it was kind of electro across the pond. I was like, oh, my God, that seems amazing. Yeah. And we, we you know, fully embraced it. We got into the graffiti and the language. And so Ali G, as a result, you know, the, I had a lot of knowledge about 
early hip hop. And um, I mean, this is quite strange actually talking about this to an American audience. But, oh no, it's uh, great. You know, some, some geeky white kid. This is this is the influence that uh, the African American community had in yeah. the early eighties. So well, now, how like because even in this new movie. At, like there was points in the new movie, like I sat in the screening room at your editor's office okay. last night. Hey, that, that's not a fun way to watch a movie. You want to have three hundred people around you? No, no, I, I you know, but I, I'm glad I got to see it. It seemed yeah. to be the only way. But what's interesting, you know, in talking about Ali G and then talking about Borat or, or any of the stuff that's relatively that that's very provocative, you know, in that that very te- that very Tay prank way. But you know, the the underlying story of this thing. Uh, you know, after all is said and done, you know, after you really, I don't want to spoil anything, but you do have the biggest dick joke, I think, in in recorded film history. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. <laughs> Do the Oscars have a category for that? Well, they, I think they'll make one. Yeah, you know, they're, exactly. they, they're under a lot of fire. Yeah. Maybe you should just get involved yeah, with that. Yeah. The story is about a sort of, um, it's in defense of the lower class on some level. Yes. Like you, you're very, you, you are fighting for the little guy. You know, I think class in England is still an issue. Yeah. So part we of We don't that, call it that here. There's yeah, well, no, there no, is no class here. I mean, that's Well, there is, but it's not we don't call it that. We just call the people that are would be categorically lower class, uh we, you know, we've convinced them that, you know, just keep working. Yeah. And and you can be yeah. higher class and and yeah. then they'll they'll think according to that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting here actually because the American dream, the brilliant thing about it yeah. is that if you're lower class or working class or however you want to describe it, you actually want to aspire to be what would be termed in England as upper class because that's the dream. Right. So in England, you don't really have that aspiration of escaping your class. No, you're it. just, you're it. That's, yeah, yeah, and there's a pride in being working class. Yeah. Therefore, you have some people who are fake working class, people who speak in a Cockney accent, even though they actually went to Eton or, yeah. you know, went yeah. to oh, some really? real, yeah, fancy yeah. school. Yeah. Uh, because they get more cred by being working class. Um, but yeah, I mean, Paul Valley G, if I think about it, was, there was an attempt subtly to slightly undermine the establishment. So the establishment at that point was partly upper class. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, if I sit down with this incredibly powerful person, and that person indulges me for an hour with the most idiotic questions, then maybe that person should not be given complete respect. Right. For somebody to actually sit in a room for an hour and believe that guy existed means that maybe, you know, the populace shouldn't necessarily give that person complete authority. Right. You know, so it's a way of slightly pricking the authority. Well, no, it seemed like that was the whole agenda of Allergy yeah. was to to show that this class difference was real and that there was no negotiating it. Yeah, you know, they're just going to condescend yeah. and, they're, and they're going to behave politely and they're going to hope you go away back to your little neighborhood yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Right. And they're going to feel good about themselves. Sure, because they, yeah. they talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I did an interview here with James Lipton from mm-hmm. the Actors Studio and... Um, he started telling me, he was very excited to tell me that he'd had African-American men over to the house and, you know, took, told me off camera right. and, you know, right. barbershop choirs. And, yeah, yeah. You know. It's like that, that Lenny Bruce bit about yeah. how, to, how to, what is it, how to entertain your black friends at parties? Or, yeah, or, or exactly. What? But the, the irony was I was completely white. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But he was trying to get down with Ali G. Sure. Yeah. How much does your 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 Jewishness or your faith inform your your way of thinking? I mean, what how Jewish were you brought up? I mean, you got a hell of a Jewish name. 
Yeah, Baron Cohen. Well, yeah. I don't think that much, really. I mean, but did you practice? Was there there was was there some education? Did you have, you know, relatives or or grandparents that you know that that taught you what it meant to be, um, you know, the sort of premium put on education and and progressiveness? I mean, was that part of your upbringing? Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting um, question because the thesis that I did at university was all about. Jews in the black civil rights movement here and I used to call it the black civil rights movement because that was the term they used at the time so in the 60s yeah and the question was you know why did Jews get involved in the black civil rights movement more than any other ethnicity sometimes do you know they were represented yeah. probably 10 20 times more than they should have been proportionally and the question was was it because they were Jews or was it for some other reason and, you know, my research and my conclusion was basically Jews in America at the time were the most liberal ethnic group. And they were probably the most activist group in any liberal political movement. So because of the roots in in uh, early socialism and getting out of the sweatshops and, and that yeah. first generation immigrants that they had they had united to integrate themselves into America. Yes. So. um you know, you see, basically, you basically see that the same percentage of Jewish students who are involved, you know, in the Black Civil Rights Movement are then moving on straight from that into the anti-Vietnam War movement. Right. So, you know, people like Abby Hoffman yeah. and you know, people like that. So, and the interesting thing is, those people who were Jews didn't get involved as Jews in the Civil Rights Movement. They got involved because they were liberals. And they were like, you know, there's this racist stuff going on. We want to fight it. Right. Uh, but for the kind of rest of the Jewish community, they were like, these Jews are getting involved. And, you know, isn't this great? We're helping black people. And we are. Yes. The, the ones who were middle class Jews that yes. had no real political affiliation necessarily yeah, out on Long Island. We're yes, like, that's exactly. very nice that those kids yes. are doing. Yeah. But really, the kids who were getting involved weren't getting involved as Jews. And, and what I found out was that the African-Americans thought that they were just white people. They didn't see these people as Jews. Right. They were like, all right, a bunch of white guys are getting involved and we yeah. don't know what their ethnicity is. Yeah. And so um, the question is why people do stuff. Is it, you know, because of their racial or ethnic identity or is it something deeper? So yeah. I think, you know, I didn't get involved in comedy or any of this stuff because I'm a Jew. I think... There's probably some reason that Jews are over-involved in the, you know, comic community. I don't know. I mean, why are you involved? Do you think it's because you're Jewish? No, but I, I feel like there was part of my upbringing, you know, probably because, I, you know, I lived here, that most of the comics that when I was a kid, uh, you know, outside of, you know, SNL and stuff, most of the stand-up comics that I gravitated towards were, were old Jews. Like mm -hmm. I liked a lot of the old Jewish guys. There was a, a cultural identification that I found, you know, compelling in my grandparents' generation that there was a type, you know, uh, the deli type or, yeah. you know, there was a neurotic type yeah. and that, that a lot of them seemed to have a quick timing, that it was all very specifically Jewish and it helped me mm. sort of identify. I think when I was younger, I did a Woody Allen play, The Don't Drink the Water, oh, yeah. and I played Walter and I played him like, what are you kidding? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and it was very easy for me to slip into that yeah. because it was, it, it, you know, I wanted it to be tangible mm. to me i wanted that to be part of my cultural heritage yeah and i and it, it just was by virtue of the fact that you know I, I grew up in it somewhat you know i i identify with it 
but I don't know if that's why. You know, I, I did, you know, there was a period where I separated myself from my Jewish identity. I refused to talk about being a Jew on yeah. stage because I, I didn't, you wouldn't necessarily know I was a Jew immediately. And I got very annoyed with the stereotype of the Jew. Yeah, sure. And I didn't want to fall into that. Now I'm a, a little less uh, worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if I'm going to become an old Jew of some sort, I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. I know that your your grandparents, so, uh, part of your family's Israeli, right? Yes. Yeah. My mother is actually, yeah. Like from Israel. Yes. Yeah. So you have that part. That yeah. Because that's a whole different thing than yeah. I imagine middle class uh, British Judaism and certainly from, you know, middle class American Judaism. Yeah. The Israeli thing is like this whole other. Yeah. Animal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that, it's totally the kind of opposite to oh, the, the rest yeah, of Jews. Yeah. It's yeah, they're tough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So your mother was a tough Israeli. Uh, I don't know if she's tough. She's uh, you know she's a formidable, hilarious woman. Yeah. You know. But did you did you do the pilgrimage? Did you go? Do you go to Israel? Do you have relatives in Israel? Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got relatives in Israel. I mean, it's interesting because we grew up. That side of the family were not into humor. Yeah. And my dad, we'd go and visit her parents, and. You know, my dad would be making jokes at the time, and my late grandfather would get very angry and say, "Stop making these diaspora jokes." Diaspora jokes. Yeah, he was a German. They they were German. Oh, yeah, and very very German. You know, they were extremely into culture, very precise. German Jews are, are a little. Are, it's heavy. I mean, yeah, they're like tough. They're, they're they do not. Well, my late grandmother, who only died last year, actually, she was. The, uh, apparently, she was the oldest. Uh, keep fit teacher in the world so this keep fit is a tradition yeah exactly so uh, i actually did a video online if you look up 99 year old keep fit teacher that was my late grandma who died last year and somebody once asked her you know you know they took her to bruno yeah see the movie bruno which i don't know why the hell my cousins did that and she saw her and she said well i didn't like it and they go well what kind of humor do you like and she said ballet And that really is the German Jewish answer, you know. But uh, yeah, they they are not into humor, and I think it's the the Jews that were in England and America. Our way of of coping with everything is making jokes, but not only coping, but integrating. Yeah, I mean that. You know, I think that's a lot of what, like, you know, what happened was that. You know, Jews were not really welcome, but eventually people realized, like, well, you know, they're pretty smart and, you know, they seem to yeah. have a handle on some shit. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have to tolerate them somehow. So I, I think that, like, I didn't realize that in the 20s there was a, a bunch of Jewish boxers. Yes. Like, and that, yeah. you know, any way that they could integrate, you know, so, you know, they could either pass or at least have a community within mm. what America was at that time, they would do it. Yeah. And and entertainment seemed to be like it's, it was very insulated, and then it sort of branched out, and everybody thought the Jew was funny. Yeah. So you never really moved here. I mean, you, you here to L.A. I mean, you you sort of mostly live in London, so we're here. I mean, we're here. We're here probably half the year. Yeah. And then the way it works is we're off filming somewhere for three months a year, and then three months a year we're in London. You know. Did you ever end up studying acting or any part of performance? Yeah, I did. Um, I did when I was in university. I came up with this character called Solly. He was a, he was an idiot. You yeah, know? He, was, he was like my first kind of real character. Yeah, and I came up with it one night, and I had my roommate came back, and I go, I want to play you this tape, and he started really laughing hard. And um, a friend of mine in the sort of acting group in university said he'd just gone to this 
to this clown course run by this guy called Philip Golier. He's famous, right? Famous and he's clown. like the clown teacher in the world. People, people sort of travel from around the world to see him. He was uh, part of this school called uh, Le Coq. Uh-huh. Yeah. Le Coq that's in where Paris. It comes from. Yeah, exactly. Le- that's where the word comes from. <laughs> and so I decided, all right, let me try and find out whether this idiotic character I was doing is actually a clown character. I want to kind of learn about it. And so I ended up, I left university and studied with this guy for, for how long? Over about six months. Really? Yeah. And was it amazing? Oh, incredible. This is this guy is the legendary guru for any person who wants to be a professional idiot around the world. So he teaches pure clown and he teaches this other style of comedy called uh, Buffon mm-hmm. uh, or Buffoon. Yeah. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Kind of style? So yeah. it's like, it's a really interesting, it's this medieval style of kind of satire. So like your your sidekick in, in Borat is sort of buffoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And his theory, because I went to my clown teacher afterwards, you know, Philip Goli, and I said, yeah, I'm doing clown. And he goes, no, you're a buffon. I go, really? I'm buffoon. And he goes, so those, that style was, so there was this kind of, in the, uh, you know, I think sort of 11th to 15th century yeah you'd have a bunch of outcasts from society who would you know gays heretic priests jews people with deformities would sort of be told to live outside off villages you yeah. know in their you know sort of in the forests or uh-huh. you know in little they were ostracized, they're ostracized because they're deformed or, or yeah. stupid or yeah or freaks of some nature right. then once a year they were let back into the villages or towns and they would be allowed to put on Buffon plays. And um, so you'd have like some guy who was, you know, three and a half foot tall. Yeah. Would pretend to be the King of France and do a Buffon play. I'm the King of France. And And the idea, the aim of the Buffon was that the King of France would watch the Buffon play yeah. and go, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. That's uh, that guy is uh, tiny. He's, uh, he's three foot tall. And you know, the, the three foot tall guy go, what are you talking about? I am the king. I am the king. Don't be telling me I'm not the king. I am the king. And the king would go, it's me, it's me, it's me. I'm not the king. I'm the-. And eventually the king would have a heart attack and die. And then the Buffon would go, that's one for me. And so it's a really nasty form of satire. It's really kind of horror. It's the kind of humor of the dispossessed. Uh-huh. And I ended up using the technique a little bit in the publicity campaign for Borat. Uh-huh. When it came to, I ended up hosting the MTV Awards in Europe as Borat. Yeah. And there was one little sketch I did where the president of Kazakhstan comes onto the stage. And to show my respect, I got down on my knees and I kissed his uh, crotch. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, the government of Kazakhstan then complained to MTV and they complained the British government and uh, there was kind of they complained to Fox as well you could say you're going to stop making this movie and then at that point I realized okay there's an opportunity you know they wrote this letter going how can this man be a real uh, Kazakhstan his mustache was too big in Kazakhstan our mustaches are smaller they did that? yeah so they kind of wrote this letter to the British uh, did your work for you yeah exactly so I realized all right okay all right this reminds me actually of the kind of theory of Buffon so when it came to the promotion of Borat, I heard that the president of Kazakhstan was coming to America. Yeah. So I said, all right, I'm going to Washington. 
And the studio freaked out. They're like, you're not going to Washington. You're not making this movie political. Yeah. I said, well, you know what? I own the character. I'm going to Washington. So I went to Washington and we found out, I, I decided I wanted to do a press conference outside the Kazakhstan embassy claiming to be the representative of Kazakhstan. Yeah. And so obviously they found out we were coming. So we did some recon and found out that we had like a 15 minute window when the president of Kazakhstan would be heading to the White House. So in that 15 minutes, we jumped there, we called with the press there, and I delivered this press conference. Yeah. Saying, you know, I want to say on behalf of Kazakhstan that uh, the Jew Cohen have made a mockery. He have said some terrible rumors about our country, like that we have democracy and we treat women respectfully. Of course, these are scurrilous lies. And... Uh, then as a result of that, the governor of Kazakhstan did a publicity campaign. They hired a PR company and they said, all right, we're going to do a PR campaign to show that Kazakhstan is a great place. And they put about 30 million bucks into promoting the real Kazakhstan. However, for the audience, the audience were watching these TV ads and they thought I'd put the TV ads on. Right. You know, they were so ridiculous. Yeah. Like, Come to Kazakhstan. We have a fantastic potassium deposits. You know, they were so ridiculous. <laughs> And so they ended up really promoting the movie. But it was really using that Buffon that, theory. You that's, know. that's hilarious. And did you, why'd you pick Kazakhstan? Was it, I mean, there was nothing about Kazakhstan. I mean, re originally Borat had a kind of different name and he was from a different country. He was yeah. from Moldova and then he went to Albania. And it kind of, his name and the country he came from changed according to whichever comp company I was working for. So what we've learned here. You know, it, it, it essentially is that despite whatever distance you may take from your creativity, uh, you know, in, in, you know, initially, right, which is sort of like, I don't know what's going to, is that, you know, both with Ali G and with Borat, you, you, you were very uh, sort of decisive and intelligent about utilizing particular modes of satire to, to, to achieve these ends. Yes. And, uh, you yes, know, to a degree. Yes, yes. So now please tell me about the difference between between clowning and, and Buffon. So beautifully because pronounced. Because it, it seems to me that this six months at the Clown College, what's it, Lecoq? Yeah. Was, was really what opened you up creatively. Yeah, yeah. I loved it because people were coming from around the world and this guy, Philippe Gaulier, would sit there with a the little drum. Yeah. And if you weren't funny, he'd hit the drum and you'd go off. Really? Yeah. And was this only with physicality or could you talk? Or no, how, you how... could talk as well. You uh -huh. could talk. It was kind of talking clown and, you know, uh -huh. you wore a red nose. You did. You wore a red nose and um, so some people would start bursting into tears. You know, they'd flown all the way from Australia. Yeah. They'd walk on stage and within three seconds he hits the drum and they have to sit down. <laughs> and he would let me go on stage sometimes for 15 minutes. And so the rest of the class started hating me. Yeah. And me and this guy from Sweden would have this kind of double act where we never would do the exercises. We'd stay on. We wouldn't understand. If he hit the drum, he'd say, get off. You get off the stage right now. You are a, bit, you're a bad student. Go and sit on the, the chair for the bad student. And, you know, I, I'd just sort of stand it. No, good student. You know, and we did this kind of carry. I didn't know what was going on. It was this kind of surreal experience yeah. he never really explained what was going on but over those six months i kind of found got confidence in doing this kind of style of comedy so i suppose the difference is bouffant is this nasty knowing form of satire that yeah. the aim is to undermine the establishment right 
And Clown is a more simple and loving character. So the Clown is the simpleton who has the naivety of a child and is as stupid as a child. It's the reason why if a three-year-old kid walks into a room, everyone laughs. Yeah. It's because the kid is saying really stupid things. Yeah. But in a very nice, sweet way. And that really is what the clown is doing. You know, so the, the, the rule with clown is if this character was one degree more stupid, he'd probably be dead. Right. Because he wouldn't be able to survive. He couldn't right. cross a road or... So Ali arrive. G. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Ali G was that guy who... Yeah. But, you know, you you can sort of believe this guy exists. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, it seems to me that you've you've created hybrids of these two characters. Right? Yeah. You seem like Borak could sort of go either way. Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought I knew what I was talking about. And I went to the clown teacher and he said, no, you got it completely wrong. So. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. right? And in, in like Bruno... Uh, is 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 also a hybrid, but this guy in the Grimsby movie is sort of almost straight clown. Yeah, in a way. Yes, yeah, he's more of a simpleton. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I know I'm being, you know, uh, um, nar- narrow by using these, yes, these, these titles or these labels. But I mean, coming from what you come from, you know, in in that's how you sort of learn how to uh, uh, learn your comedic craft. Yes, you know, along these lines but are also somehow able to integrate a, a full, uh, seemingly a full emotional and psychological life, which would be the actor in you, into these clowns and bouffants. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So what, listen to me using the word interesting. It's, uh-huh, uh-huh. it's horrendous. Well, you've just used the word bouffants. So, yeah, you know. well, I'm excited about yeah, that. Exactly. Now, I guess my question then is is that, you know, after obviously you played out the ability to, to efficiently or, or at least um, stealthily prank because of your notoriety and it feels like it's been a bit uh since you've done something like that you Mm. know with those three characters was there ever a thought of like you know using prosthetics or 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 continuing that tradition or just something you exhausted you know i miss it i miss the adrenaline and i miss the you know those sketches were kind of pure comedy yeah you you go out with a pure comic idea and you see can i make it happen yeah but I think it will be impossible to really get away with those characters anymore. You know, right? Mind you, on Friday I did a little piece. I went out as myself as a kind of BBC reporter, asking people what they thought of Sasha Baron Cohen movies, and they had no idea it was you. Well, you know, one in every sort of four didn't really know it was me, right? And you know, some people got really riled up. One person called me a cunt. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, like as I talk to you, and, and the more I realize that how much of 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 the drive of these characters, you know, the prank characters, was to to push the First Amendment, to to, to ride a line with that, and and to push this idea, because in the new movie, the level of 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 I I don't even like the word crass, but you know, extraordinarily graphic. Mm. graphically executed filthy jokes yes that's my speciality yeah, but it is it, it, you love it yeah i don't know why i actually got to, <laughs> i i blame python i blame python you do you bl- life of brian I, I remember meaning of life oh with the fat guy yeah the fat guy right. it was it was shocking but funny and i for some reason that uh they did I'm drawn they- to that and i know it alienates a lot of the audience and I'm always stuck with that question of, do I broaden the audience and make this a kind of family movie, which all the other comedians do, or do I narrow the audience? Well, I think what you get when you do it your way, 
is um, you get the possibility of here's the the, the one downside of it. Even mm. even with some of the prank movies, is that you're you're going to get people who are who are smart and are, are willing to be open minded enough to indulge even the most dramatically crass satire. And mm. and and that type of of over the topness is, has always been part of satire. You know, mm. you, to push it, it's almost Swifty and you know, or, or, or Baudelaire or any of them, where you know everything is just you know the, things are ripping at the seams. You know, and, mm. and think there's blood and guts and goo and. But uh, but the, I think that the the liability of it, you're going to get a lot of you know morons who are like, oh shit, oh look at that, you fucking on his face. Yeah, was, yeah. But so on some on that level, it is approach appealing to a broad audience. Yeah, just not kids. But yeah. you know, again, you know, maybe morons. Yes, yeah. <laughs> not to hurt I anybody. I don't Fools. like to. Yeah, I don't like to discriminate against <laughs> morons. Well, no, could the whole movie's yeah. about that. Yeah, it's about not discriminating against morons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly and what's Wait. that guy's name who plays your brother he's called Mark Strong like he's like an action movie guy yeah he's a complete well the idea with this movie was let's make it a completely authentic action movie and my character accidentally falls into it so right. let's keep the genre yeah. rather than doing a parody or an action comedy let's make it an action movie that has some really funny stuff in so yeah, you um, went all the way you went all out with that sequence that opening sequence yeah. that introduces the action movie it was like holy shit yes yeah, so like, we thought like because that was some of the action comedies that i didn't really like that they go all right let's do a little bit of action and then let's get a second unit director in and it's good enough yeah and you know when we've been doing any of these movies like borat yeah. we wanted it to be an authentic documentary that unfortunately has this idiot Kazakhstani reporter in the middle of it. Yeah. So the idea was there's this authentic action movie that could rival, you know, feel right. like a cool action movie. Right, right. But Sasha Baron Cohen's in it. You Did know. you direct it? Uh, no, we had Louis Leterrier, who's this action director. Right. And he's yeah. like a full-on, hardcore action director to get that kind of authenticity. Right, and it's there. And, and the funny thing is, playing the comedy against that or integrating the two, there's some sort of like goofy turns. Yes. But but it's still, once you buy the conceit, you kind of go with it. Yeah. And then you, you wait for the next, like, you know, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, you know, the... the <laughs> With the with the what's her name Sibiday what's her uh, name? Oh, Gabourey like, Sibiday yes oh my the girl God. from Precious yeah 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 like like you know that the, there's a moment there where you're like is this right or wrong it, yes it <laughs> yeah and, and but what what what's unique to you is that somehow or another you know this moron this fool you know is is endearing you know yeah. in in the midst of all this stuff that you know he has this weird kind of earnestness to him and all those guys who who plays friends in the town and everything it's all it it's it, it, it's definitely very python in a way yeah so what do you want to do man i mean do you want to stay doing comedy do you have a desire to do straight acting i mean i know like people make a comparison to you and sellers and you haven't mentioned sellers do you how do you take that comparison like either it's going to be well, andy kaufman or peter sellers i think generally. well sellers would be the greatest comparison i could ever get i mean he I'd say it was, you know, Python for the laugh out loud extremity. But Sellers was the inspiration in that I think he's the greatest comedic actor who's... The commitment. Yeah, the commitment and the believability of the characters and the subtlety. Yeah. But yet they were still hilarious. You never doubted that Clouseau could right. exist. Right, There was no wink to the camera. And, I mean, apparently a horrible man, but what a performer and what a... What a comedian, possessed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, I thought he was kind of inspirational. So if I could get any comparison with him, I'd be amazingly pleased. And what was the movie of his that, you know, really sort of, was it Clouseau that made you sort of like As realize? a kid, it was Clouseau. Yeah. And um, I think then Strange Love right, and then right. being there was amazing. You know, this kind of subtle, yeah. that kind of is a clown performance. Yeah, it is. He's out of it and he's misinterpreted and... Yeah. And he's a child. Yeah, he's a man child. Yeah. He's a man child. And what about the comparisons to Andy? Do you do you Well, I didn't grow up watching Kaufman and yeah. and in England he wasn't really popular. So yeah. when I came here, then I got sent some of his DVDs and there's brilliant right. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel in a way he's probably more of an artist than I am, in that I don't think he cared what the audience thought. And I really deep down I want to make people laugh. And that's why I fight to get stuff to be funny and yeah, to yeah. get big, big laughs in the audience. And I'll go to war with whichever studio has been student, stupid enough to pay me money to make a movie. So, yeah. you know, they probably hate me at Sony because they go, why are you still fighting for these gags? You know, yeah. but once I love a gag and once I fall, think I've got to get this on screen, I will fight tooth and nail to get the gag on screen. Right. There's a lot of gags. Yeah. Yeah. And did uh, yeah, at the end there was a disclaimer. You, Daniel Radcliffe had nothing to do with the movie? Nothing to do with the movie. You put him in there. We stuck him in there, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Trump as well. Donald Trump makes an appearance in the movie. Yeah, we we, we won't say what happens to no, him. No, no. But that won't. was a. Uh, either yeah. of them. We don't have to say what happens to either of them. I actually uh, <laughs> I interviewed him once as Ali G. And I remember being in his office and he kept me waiting, I think about an hour and a half, which is fine. But during that time, he was screaming so loudly. It was like, get me! Get me the mayor of New York on the phone! Get me the mayor! You know, it was like this kind of bad villain yeah. in a cheap, bat, in, a, in a bad Batman movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. Screaming at Giuliano on the phone. I just thought it was an incredible character. I couldn't believe he existed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he does in a big way right he now. He exists. I mean, could he be president? I don't, I don't think, think so. so. I don't think so. No. I don't think so. I mean, it'd be great for comedians and great for satirists, but terrible for the world. But I, but I think it's it's sort of a testament to you know sort of what we were talking about before about sort of you know mining the anger of the disenfranchised to 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 make them complicit in 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 a momentum that will ultimately betray them. Yes, and he's able to do that. That's the there was a line in the dictator at the end of the dictator, the guy who plays the dictator. I mean. I play the dictator, but Admiral General Aladdin <laughs> does this speech about dictatorships. And one of the lines is, uh, I think, as I remember, it's, you know, we can get poor people to vote against their interests. You yeah. know, you know, one of the great things you can do in dictatorships. And it's what clever politicians end up doing, oh, you know, yeah. which is vote for me and I'm going to look after your interests, which is... yeah which are policies which prevent you from getting money. Right. You know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was in The Dictator. Yeah. There was some speech at the end. I, I should remember it, but I can't really. Did but... you write it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I wrote it. It was actually Adam McKay had the idea for that speech. And then I, I was kind of reading a lot of stuff at that time. There were a lot of riots going on in England mm -hmm. off the kind of disenfranchised. Yeah. And there was the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement at the yeah. time. So it kind of influenced that speech. Do you want to do more uh, serious stuff or what? I don't know. There's not really a plan. No? You know, the plan, I live 
joke to joke really you know yeah. I, I really do i kind of you know think of an idea for a movie and then how do i make it as funny as i can and then how do i make the movie happen and it's unfortunately continually a battle trying to get that stuff on screen now i feel like studios particularly post the north korean hack uh -huh. are a lot more conservative in what they'll put on screen right? uh -huh. I think, listen, I think the sad thing about the North Korean hack with Sony was, you know, it's a way for totalitarian states that have no freedom of speech to extend the sphere of their influence. Yeah. So, you know, one of the great reasons why America is a great country is you have freedom of speech. How do you prevent freedom of speech? You have totalitarian states threaten the people who control and create entertainment with acts of terrorism and say all right you do anything that's going to upset us we're going to shut your movie we're going to shut your studio down we're going to threaten to bomb your cinemas yeah so now in the back of studios minds they don't want to do anything to upset any incredibly powerful force whether it's north korea you know i, I wonder whether given this political climate whether if i was you know, a comedian from the Ali G show and some, you know, niche HBO show. And I said, listen, I want to, I walked into Fox today and said, listen, I want to make a movie about Kazakhstan. I wonder whether the heads of Fox would say, yeah, yeah, we'll do right. the movie, but we're not using a real country. Right. That country's going to go and, you know, right. attack us. You know? Right. I wonder. Yeah. I don't, I think there is, uh, you know, studios now, and I don't want to sound like the kind of liberal Jew, but... Studios now are generally owned by multinationals, and they want to risk. Uh, they want to risk as little as they can and minimize liability. So the problem with that is something like Borat. It's a crazy experiment. I mean, it was a it was a mad experiment, and it could only exist with a studio that said, "Here, listen. Here's fourteen million bucks. Go and yeah. do it." This guy will make 40 million bucks in yeah. Europe. And it's if you die, be fine. we're still going to make 40 million bucks. Yeah, if we're you just sign fine. this. Yeah, yeah we're, we're fine. You <laughs> right. know, but you need to, to do something that's new. Yeah. You need to have, you know, you need to have heads of students who feel confident. And, right. you know, I, right. th I think they take chances. Yeah. And I think the heads of the students are, you know, good people who are talented and they, and I think a lot of them love movies and love art. Yeah. But their hands are slightly tied now by these, you know, legal Bottom departments yeah. in the, you know, in the multinationals that control them. Right, right, right. This movie feels like right out of the gate, like the new movie, the the Grimsby Brothers Grimsby, is that like right out of the gate, I thought like, well, this is sort of a British movie. Yeah. I, I think, like, do, do you feel like it, that you made it like a little bit for the British audience? Yeah, it's for, it's for England, you know. Yeah. Um, but at the end, at the beginning, Borat was a kind of Kazakhstani movie as well. So <laughs> we thought, listen, when we thought we're going to, we thought no one was going to ever see Borat. Yeah. I mean, it was a movie about a Kazakhstani documentary. <laughs> yeah. So who's going to, how do you sell that? You oh, know? come on. You know that guy. That was a great character. I knew it was a good character, but I didn't think anyone would watch it. And oh, it really? had anti-Semitic content in yeah. there. We thought no one would ever go and see it. It's huge. It. Yeah, and, it ended up and, being good. And how do your parents feel about your work? I think they like it. You I think, think they, uh, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing for them, but generally they're fully supportive and I couldn't really have done any of it without their yeah. blessing. What's embarrassed them? I think they found Bruno quite extreme, which mm -hmm. it was. I mean, yeah. Yeah. 
I can't believe actually in retrospect that a, a major studio released that movie. I mean, it had a 35 second close up of a man's penis. Yeah. You know, it should have really been an art house movie that got released in. Yeah. Didn't you get into some trouble with a group of guys too, where you almost got your ass kicked? Um, was that in Bruno? Yes, right. I got, I got, uh, there are a few different, you know, I, I almost got uh, killed in Jerusalem, actually, ironically, by a bunch of Hasids. And then there are a few different incidents. I went hunting with a bunch of guys who, once they realized I was gay, there was some line where we're around this campfire. We're on this, in this kind of private hunting estate where they have canned hunts. Yeah. And I look into the sky and I go, look at all the stars up there and really just reminds you of all the hot guys and so well doesn't that and there was a silence then from these three guys who realized they're with a gay guy yeah and i'm going camping with them and i'm gonna you know be in a tent next to theirs they then get up they take their rifles and they load their rifles they put ammo in their rifles and my i had a researcher there and i go what's going on he goes they've you know loaded their rifles i go why and he goes, well, they've said that there are boars here, you know, and they don't want any animals to kind of attack them at night. But then I knew the rest of the scene was I was going to have to go naked into one of their tents and try and get into their tent and sleep with the guy. And so... Um, so they could have shot you thinking it was an animal. Yeah, I mean, there's a law in Arkansas and a few other places, I think it's called King of the Castle Law, yeah. which is when you're on your own private property, if you shoot someone... It's very, very hard to sue them, right? Know? Or to, yeah, to get legal action. Yes, it's yeah. self-defense. Yes, exactly. So, so, so you didn't go into the tent. No, I did actually. But you know, I think you. Ha- I had at that point this dilemma. I was talking to Larry Charles, the director. You know, and I'm still. You know, I'm, I have to stay in characters the whole time. And he's going, "Do you want to do this? You know, Bruno, do you want to do this?" And there's a part of me which is, "All right, this is maybe a little bit risky." But then there's the other part which is. I need it for the movie. I've come all this way. I'm in a field in the middle of Arkansas at two in the morning. Let's finish the scene. You know, it doesn't seem like a crazy risk. It seems like a small risk. There's cameras there. There are still people. There are people and there are cameras there. They're really going to, if they shoot me, they're going to have to shoot the whole crew. Right. Are they really going to do that? So what's the likelihood of that? Probably one in a hundred. Right. You know, am I ready to take a one in a hundred risk? 99% 99% risk that it's going to be fine. Yeah. So that happened a lot, that you, so, your yeah. life really felt threatened. Well, I think particularly in Bruno, because it's a different type, form of prejudice. So you have like anti-Semitism, you have racism, but, you know, homophobia means fear of the homosexual. Yeah. And where there's fear, that can turn into violence. So yeah. people who don't like gay people are scared of them. And can, you know, that can transition into violence pretty quickly. It's like threatening on, on a, 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 it seems to be threatening on a, a more core primitive level. Exactly. So yeah. they, there was a recent study actually where they showed people pictures of naked men. And they found out that the homophobes who are most likely to use violence or use violent language against gay people were those who had some increase in tumescence yeah. and blood flow to yeah. their groin yeah. while show it's being, seeing Interesting. naked men. Yeah. So it's guys who are struggling with their sexuality who are going to go out and right. Right. beat up They're, gay guys. Right. So we would 
you know, how does that affect us in a kind of real way? So we'd go, you know, let's well, have maybe not struggling, but not, you know, not willing to uh, allow it in them. Yes. Like I, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, 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 they're probably gay. It just means like they're attracted for whatever reason, but that can't even live inside them. Well, there's this, you know, the thing about being straight or gay, they're kind of silly terms yeah. because, you know, it's a scale. So right. everyone is somewhere on the scale. Right. I, I'm 23% gay. Yeah. You, oh, you figured that out? Yeah, I've worked it out. We did all the calculation. I'm 23% gay. You know, I have been. There's it's been times. Number. It's a good times number. Times I got down to 17, I got up to 31. When I was doing Bora and I had the, you know, testicles on my chin, I was up to 31. Yeah, um, I've done that in a couple movies. Yeah, but everyone, exactly. It's a, it's a theme. It's a motif. And the... You know, so everyone's on that scale somewhere. Sexuality, it's like being black or white. No one's yeah. quite black or white. There are some yeah. people who are albino and there's some yeah. people who are. Yeah. yeah. But generally people are on that scale. And that's why, you know, it, it's difficult for people. But so that how that affects us in a real way was, let's say I'm in Texas. You know, I know I want to go into a bar. It's a biker bar. And I'm, I've just finished with my boyfriend. I want to get laid that night. Right. And so I want to make out with one of the guys. I want to take them back home and have sex with them yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And so we'll have like a guy who's a cop with us who we've paid. It's a great thing about America. You can pay cops to help you. So uh, we'll go to a bar. You obviously want to go to a rough bar. And yeah. then you say, okay, give us some of the figures of, you know, have there any, have there been any homicides in this bar? How many? When was the last homicide? Who committed the homicide? Are they behind bars? You know, are there any guys in there with kind of serious, you know, criminal histories who could be a problem? So you try and limit the amount of risk. You don't want to go right. and die. You right. want to go and survive and do a funny joke. Right. So there's always, what I'm always trying to do is get the funniest joke with a bit of, that can be edgy, but you're trying to limit the possibility that something bad can happen for you or the crew. Right. So that's really the or that or the volatility of the subject that you know like it's weird like when I had a conversation about my, with my producer about it, that in most cases the the people that were you know the 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 pawns in this thing you know that that were being duped somehow mm. usually you know on, on one side or another we're we're trying to behave properly yeah it, it, that was what's really interesting is that yeah. within whatever scope they could. They they wanted to to be accommodating and polite. Yes, and yes. And it, Apart from in Bruno, in Bruno that was more because the character uh, was more unlikable. We right. intentionally made him unlikable. We thought, okay, we've got to put him in increase. Well, yeah, because you hate that guy immediately, whether yeah. he's gay or not. He's yeah. just annoying. Yeah, and and he's like you don't know like for an American, you don't really know where he's from. You de and and the fact that like there were actually people that you could find that didn't know he was gay immediately is baffling to me. Like their their experience with with um with that flamboyant a character who is clearly out and, and there's no way you can not you, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, but, I was just thinking about that. We did one interview that never made the air with this neo Nazi guy. Um. Who, who actually, I think it's on death row now. He ended up uh, a couple of years ago going and trying to shoot some uh, people. He sh murdered three people oh in some God. Jewish community center. Oh, my God. And we went and interviewed him. And the idea was I was going there and I was going to give him publicity for his little neo-Nazi organization. Uh -huh. And, um, 
you know, you gotta get celebrities involved. Why don't you get Woody Allen to be the head of your organization? Because Woody Allen is a Jew. And um, the idea was I'd go into his uh, place and at some point my assistant would give me a wheatgrass shot and accidentally he dropped the wheatgrass shot on my white trousers and I'd have to take my white trousers off. This is a Dolce and Gabbana. This is the worst 5,000 euros. Go and find a fucking dry cleaner now and get them dry cleaned. And so I would have to do the rest of the interview in my G-string with this neo-Nazi guy and, you know, have him take him around. And eventually I'd go, you know, show me. I want to know how Monday Nazi lives. Show me around the house. Come on, this, show me, let's do the cribs, you know. Yeah. And eventually he took me into his bedroom and I'm there in my G-string and my boyfriend in the movie runs in and goes, oh, okay. Oh, so you guys are stupid, yeah? yeah? You just sucked his dick. And I go, what are you talking about? I haven't been doing that at all. And he goes, so why are you in your G-string with this guy in his bedroom? Explain yourself. And this guy obviously got a little bit angry and threatened and tried to punch the other guy and uh but i'm saying not funny not in the end it was too extreme because the problem is if you get somebody who's that full of hate you actually don't you feel uncomfortable in the room and you feel uncomfortable actually watching them on screen right um so uncomfortable because it's threatening or because it's fucking tragic well, they're tragic. They're, you're giving them ultimately a platform for their right. vicious, right, disgusting right. views. Right. And sometimes the air of underlying violence, and I could sense with this guy, he'd already just come out of jail for some plot to overthrow government and trying to blow up some building. Right. And his whole place was full of machine guns and yeah. ammunition in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, you know that somebody's pretty extreme if they've got ammunition in the kitchen. Yeah. It, it, there was just an unpleasant air about the whole movie right you know? yeah but in that so that 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 that's adrenaline tipping towards the negative yes exactly and yeah. I, I i remember him showing me photos or on the phone i was like who's that guy he goes that guy's my son and i remember looking at the son i go that son is going to come after me at some point and then a week afterwards we heard that the son had been shot dead by police he shot a police officer so you were in real evil we were in really, but this was a bad guy. Right, and right. You, you sense that sometimes. I think, so, you know, I've had the unfortunate experience of being around some people who've, who were kind of really bad people. Yeah. And they never really make it to, you know, on screen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I can't imagine it. So how do you exit a situation like that? Like, okay, thank you. you no, you- well, it turned violent and I, I ended up trying to protect my the guy playing my boyfriend because yeah. he he also had never been in one of these situations beforehand and so you're a movie to, situation or a, a, either a movie it's his first movie and his first undercover right, kind of movie right, situation right, yeah. and suddenly there's this guy trying to who's saying I'm going to kick you in the face you know yeah. and uh, for for a situation like that we hire a you know you hire a kind of bodyguard right and you know there's a certain amount they can do so we hire a guy and his job is um, he's a bit like Nobby, actually. He's like this northern bloke. And his job his job is to prevent me from being arrested. Because once I was arrested, it would mean that I couldn't get back into the country and get a visa. So we're in Kansas, and the police find out that I'm there. And we do a few things, and police 
go, okay, anything else, you know, we're going to arrest him. And yeah. they let us know. And so we, we still have to do a few bits. So we're in this hotel room and there's a bit in Bruno where I wake up, I get drunk after failing in this biker bar for, to make love to anyone. Uh, I end up drunk with my assistant. We wake up and we're in this room, in this hotel room, and we're chained to each other in this kind of S&M kind of crazy gear yeah he's got a toilet brush in his mouth and there is you know there's feces smeared on the wall and it's a pretty extreme room there's a there's a pedal powered fucking machine in the corner yeah and it's disgusting the yeah. room's disgusting we call down to uh, and i'm freaked out that i've made love to my to my assistant who i hate yeah he's the guy at the end who i end up making love to and it's a, it's yeah. a rom-com yeah. yeah sure um and so we call down and I get the manager up. I need to get, you know, has anyone got a key? And they come into the room and they see all this disgusting stuff in the room and they call the cops. And so immediately when the cops are called, this guy's job is to get me out off the hotel without getting arrested. Uh, because we know the Kansas police have made it clear. So we always have an escape van and the escape van is waiting in the alleyway at the back and we have an escape route. And his plan is he like unlocks us and we start running to the um, service elevator, get in the service elevator, which doors are closing. Suddenly the hotel security open the doors and they say, get out. And we've got the police downstairs. They're arriving. We run away from them, start running down the um, fire, you know, the staircase, run down. We're on the 17th floor. And the uh, security guard's like, follow me, follow me. Come on, follow me. And we're running down this corridor and I'm in, you know, G-string and my friend's got, you know, my co-star's got this toilet brush from his mouth and, you know, still got chains and this extreme S&M outfit. And there are kind of guys painting this, you know, the 17th floor of this Kansas hotel. And he's going, come on, run, run, run. And he's, we run, we run to the end of the corridor and I go, where, where are we going? And he goes, there's the cops downstairs, out the window, get out. I go, Out? So he lifts open the window and there's a rickety old fire escape. And he goes, get out, out. So we start running down this rickety old fire escape dressed in this crazy S&M stuff. We get down and fire escapes in Kansas, they only get down to right, like they the- they have to drop the yes. steps. Yeah. So we couldn't drop the steps. We're down to the, you know, like 15, drop right, the 10 ladder. feet. Right. I think we're 10 feet or 12 oh God, feet. Yeah. I'm like, how do we get, I can see the getaway car. Yeah. And um, he goes, jump. I go, why? He goes, jump. So there are these two African-American ladies who are like having a little cigarette break. And from the heavens appears me. I jump in front of them wearing kind of heels and this crazy S&M stuff. And then my friend with the toilet brush in his mouth. I crack. I break my heel. And we jump into the car. The van disappears. We get out of the state. You know, we always have to get out of the state. And... um, you know, unfortunately, we had to shut down the movie because this idiot had made me jump out of a bloody 10-foot fire escape. So I, broke my, I broke my heel. Oh, you did. So we shut down for three months. So now, it's one of the reasons why you don't do this anymore because maybe your wife said, you know, I don't want you to die for a fucking joke. Yes, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's part of it. I mean, one day, again, a lot of these stories are in. I don't want you to end up in jail because of a yeah. fucking joke. Well, one time in New York, we ended up doing a bunch of stuff on Borat in the same, I think it was uh, it was a precinct 
it was all to do around the park, you know, Madison and Park. And, yeah. I don't really know, but sort of Central Upper park. West yeah. Side. Yeah, it's kind of a very, the fancy area of New York. Yeah. You know, Central Park kind of yeah. area. Unfortunately, that was all within one precinct. Yeah. And so they kept on getting police reports that we're there. And uh, at one point, we did one scene where Borat, you know, goes into a hotel. He has to leave. And I take my bag and I take all the furniture out of the room as well. They call the cops. And the the police, uh, I don't know, whatever you'd call him, captain in charge of that precinct, knew it was me and was getting increasingly frustrated. And that's a really bad thing to do. You don't want to piss off some police guy. So he decided... He's getting me arrested. And what they did was, uh, the police are on their way. I disappear as always. What they did was they arrested the producer of the movie and the assistant director. They took them into the cells. And she, you know, she was like a 31-year-old woman, uh, Monica Levinson. And the assistant director actually, you know, he was a real gentleman. He said, I'm going to go with you to jail. And they gave her a really rough night. And then we get a call, which was, if Sasha comes down, we will release everyone. And we call up my lawyer, the guy with the... Uh, in India. Staff in India. And he's like, it's a trap. They want to arrest you and they're going to get publicity if they're the guys who arrested Ali G. And you have to get out of the state now. So, you know, I get back to the hotel and I I go, baby, we've got to get out of the state now. We're going to get out, you know, pack, 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 and let's go. To your wife. Yeah, so there yeah. were a couple of times over the years where she had to, you know... Right. You know, she came down once and set. We had a baby at the time. And she's like, oh, I'm going to visit my husband on set. <laughs> and I think we were in uh, Alabama and there was a cop chase. They were chasing me in a van. And I, I developed this technique of being able to direct the driver while being on the floor. Like, okay, tell me what's in front of you. Go right, go left, da, da, da. <laughs> And so there's a cop chase and she's listening in on the walkie-talkie and we had a baby. She's like, oh, right, right, I'm not visiting set anymore. You know, we had one time when I was doing Borat where I'm interviewing this woman in, um, I think I was in Tennessee. And I go, excuse me, can I please use your laboratories? And she goes, of course, you know. And I go to the bathroom and I come back out after 10 minutes and I'm wearing her towel yeah. and using her toothbrush. I'd had a shower and my hair's wet. Yeah. And she calls the police and she throws me out of the... Good, Fair enough. Yeah. I don't blame her. Yeah. She throws me out of the room, locks the front door. And I'm outside the door, but she's got my costume, Borat's only costume inside. Yeah. And I've got her property, which is her town. And I hear the cop cars coming and they're getting closer and closer. And I go, what do I do? What do I do? Because if, if I take... If I run in the car, it's theft. Um... So anyway, I ended up sort of jumping in the car and we had to negotiate. The police took the costume and... Uh, oh, they got the costume and you yeah, made and an I'm exchange? Speaking, yeah, we made an exchange and I'm on the floor going, what do I do? Do I return the town? Because to the guy in India. Yeah, to the guy in India, yeah. <laughs> Where's that movie? So we were in Kansas one time. Again, this is after the... Uh, just before the day of breaking the heel. Yeah. And uh, we decide there's this... Um, there's this group called God Hates Fags. Yeah, 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 Phelps. The, yeah, the Phelps yeah. family. Not yeah. a nice family. And um, so, again, the the cops say they knew we were there. They know we're in Kansas. And they go, all right, we're arresting Sasha. We know he's there. And God Hates Fags heard out that, heard that I was going to do something against them. 
we knew they were doing a demonstration and the cops say all right they they let our cop know we see him he's arrested and that's it and they shut down the movie so i really need the scene and i'm thinking what do i do here you know and you know our cop says they've given you a warning a fair warning yeah you should leave the state now and i go all right what i wanted to do is uh they found out that the cops were circling the god hate fag demonstration yeah. so i said all right time how long we've got between every circle so they time in it, it's like three minutes 30 seconds yeah so i go all right what we're going to do is when they pass the god hates fags so you're going to drop me off at that moment when they cross past the corner so we're out of our eyesight you're doing and recon so it's we've cr- got like three minutes or two minutes 50 to do what and you're and i'm going to do a quick little sketch you know, and then I want another car that's waiting and I'll go from one car to the other car. So, and somebody needs to kind of give me, you know, hold up things like 30 seconds, you know. And so we did it. We managed to do the sketch and jump in and we had like a a bond lawyer hiding in the bushes in case I was arrested <laughs> to get me out on, you know, uh, on bail immediately. I'm just trying to think what this feels like. It's just sort of like, y- you know, that y- you you definitely... The balance you had to strike and this weird relationship you have with the law and then them knowing you on top of that and not willing to indulge you. Like even knowing that like if you're going to walk out with furniture from the hotel, you're going to bring it back. Yeah. And, but but the hotel's like, well, we don't want to indulge this fuck. Yeah. We're running a business here. Exactly. It's not our job to be his fucking, you, you know, so you had to negotiate all this and yet do these little recons that, you, you know, how how are you going to beat the uh, the fucking excitement of that. You yeah, know? you can't. It's hard for me. That's why I do a lot of improv on set now and a lot of... Yeah. Uh, and are there states you can't go back to? Um, I think only Sedona, Arizona. Technically, I'm a felon in Sedona. Mm-hmm. Um, I think other states are kind of fine. I mean, we're going to Russia in a couple of weeks, which will be interesting. That's my first time back since doing Bull Rat. And after Bull Rat, the... Prime Minister of uh, Kazakhstan, Nashabayev, he contacted the British Prime Minister, who was Tony Blair at the time. He then later on admitted to me, Nashabayev said, all right, I want you to stop this guy from releasing his film. I want you to end Borat. And he said, well, listen, it's not a dictatorship here. I can't, like, do that. (laughs) And then there's some other... Did you talk to Tony Blair about it? Yeah, Tony Blair contacted me about... (laughs) A year after, he had to leave office. And... He said, you know, you put me in a difficult position because we were doing trade with Kazakhstan and you made me, you know, you kind of embarrassed me. He thought it was quite funny. So that's the buffon. That's the buffon, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you are. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're going back to Russia? So we're going back to Russia to promote the movie, but it's the first time I've gone there since, mm. which will be interesting. It'd if be I don't horrible. come back... It'd be horrible if you got arrested now. Yeah. It's after it's all said and done. Yeah, exactly. Well, we, I got um, invited to Kazakhstan during the promotional stuff for Bora because they realized at one point, let's embrace him. Fox got worried that I was, because there were kind of death threats. And yeah. So they hired like specialist security who are basically usually complete morons. Yeah. You know, some guy I was swimming in Sydney during the publicity tour and this guy didn't know I was going to go swimming. And he starts walking in his full clothes into the into the water you know so these guys who were trained in the army to look yeah. after oh i'm not letting him go uh 
So they did like a security assessment of me going to Kazakhstan. They said it's impossible to secure you because even if one in 10 people wants to hurt you, yeah. you just can't, yeah, so you you can't do it. No. All right. Well, take care of yourself, will you? Thank you very much. Well, listen, now I'm doing kind of straight ahead movie, uh, you know. Yeah, it's a movie, movie so movie. it's easier. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. With Scorsese, you don't get in trouble. You know? Right, right, right. What did you do with Scorsese? I did this movie called Hugo. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It's a big movie. It's a kid's movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but you're, I, I have a feeling like like I think the, the only thing that's going to really stop you from doing this shit again eventually will be your family. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for having me on, indulging me, and let, letting me spout out all these long stories that are it's great. Probably slightly repetitive, actually. No one's heard them. No one's heard them. You're right, but I'm, they're, they're, they're on the theme, aren't they? They're on but the theme. I, no, we covered a lot of stuff, and this was a really nice long interview, and it was a yeah, pleasure talking been, to you. Yeah, pleasure, pleasure being here. Good, good coffee, actually. Good. Thank you, mate. Right. Sasha Baron Cohen. Couldn't get him to stop talking. <laughs> I didn't want to, but he was he was ready. Maybe it was that coffee. I should remember what that coffee was. You can also go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Uh, I, I uh, you know, posters, stuff, things. I'll, I'll play a little guitar. <laughs> Boomer Lee!